Now hear God's holy word from Leviticus chapter nine. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before Yahweh. And to the children of Israel, you shall speak saying, take a kid of the goats as a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering also a bull and a ram as peace offerings to sacrifice before Yahweh and a grain offering mixed with oil for today Yahweh will appear to you. Then he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people and killed it and offered it for sin like the first one. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, burned it on the altar besides the burnt sacrifice of the morning. He also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. And Aaron's sons presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled all around on the altar. Then Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for drawing us into your presence today. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray that we would be granted your spirit now so that we might hear your word. We might absorb it, follow it, meditate on it. And Father, we pray that you deliver us from every error, deliver us from every distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have likely heard the old story of the young woman who had friends over for a dinner party, and she served them a delicious roast beef that she had prepared. It was juicy, it was tender, it was flavorful. Uh, Everybody enjoyed it. One of the friends enjoyed it so much that she asked her for the recipe, and the young woman wrote it down for her. And then reading over the recipe, her friend asked, why do you cut off both ends of the roast before you put it in the pan? And the hostess said, I'm not quite sure why we do that. I'm sure it has something to do with the way that it cooks in the oven. And that's probably what it makes it so tender. But honestly, I got this recipe from my mom and that's how she always did it. And the question got her to thinking, and so the next day she calls her mom to ask her, when we make the roast that you always made growing up uh, when I was at home and that I make now, why do we cut the ends off before we put it in the pan and season it? And the mother said, I'm not sure. That's how my mom always did it. That's how your grandmother always did it my whole life growing up, and that's how I learned to do it. But I'm sure it lends to the flavor, and I'm sure it has something to do with uh, what makes it so juicy and tender. Now the younger woman was even more curious and so she called up her grandma and asked the same question. She said, Granny, I always make that roast beef recipe that I learned from mom, the one she learned from you, but I need to know why do you cut off the ends of the roast before you put it in the pan? And the grandmother answered pretty quickly, oh, I always used to cut off the ends because the roast was always bigger than the pan that I had back then. I cut off the ends to make it fit. Uh, And now three generations later, when we have bigger pans, they're still cutting off the ends, though it no longer makes any sense. And that story is often told to highlight the way that we develop habits and traditions over time, and there's no longer any real basis for doing this or that thing other than 
that's the way we've always done it. We, we, uh, we see things done and we imitate and we do them whether or not it makes any sense. We assume that it must be the best way and we rarely stop and question the rationality of the thing that we're doing. There's another story, a similar story that circulated among pastors for several years. There was a certain small country church that was blessed with a godly minister who served them for over 35 years. This older pastor was loved by the church and loved by the community. And after he retired, he was followed by a younger pastor for whom this was his first pastorate and he wanted to do his very best. But he was only at the church for a few weeks when he began to perceive that people were upset with him about something, but he didn't know quite what it was. He couldn't figure it out. So he talked to one of the elders after church. He said, I don't know what I've done wrong, but I have a feeling that people are not happy with me. The elder said, well, I hate to say it. I'm glad you brought it up, um, but it's the way you do communion. It's the way you do the communion service. The way I do the communion service, the younger pastor said, what do you mean? He kept the service exactly the same. It was a small congregation. They used the common cup at the Lord's table for the small congregation. He didn't change a thing. Even though he'd prefer not to use the common cup, he still did it. And the elder said, well, it's not so much what you do, it's what you leave out. And he said again, I don't, I don't think I leave anything out from the communion service. And, and the elder said, oh, yes, you do. Just before our previous pastor administered the cup to the people, he'd always walk over and touch the cup to the radiator on the, on the wall of the church. Touch the cup to the radiator? I've, I've never heard of any kind of liturgical tradition, including a radiator. I don't, I, I, okay, I, I don't know what this is all about. So the younger man called the older pastor for advice. He says, I haven't been here a month and I'm in big trouble. In trouble? Why are you in trouble? Well, it's, it's something to do with touching the radiator. Could that be possible? Did, did, did you do that? And the older pastor said, oh, yes, I did. Always before I administered the cup to the people, I, I touched the, the cup to the radiator to discharge the static electricity so I wouldn't shock them when they took the cup. And now everybody expects this to be part of the uh, spiritual tradition of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Lord's table when all it was was this very practical little thing that, that he did. Traditions start to take on a life of their own. They take on a spiritual significance whether or not there was actually any intended. And before long, you could have a couple of generations of this and then you have the Church of the Holy Radiator and uh, everybody expects you to do that every time. At Christ Church, we are committed to a biblical, sober, reverent, historic practice of worship. And by historic, I mean we do and we say and we sing things that have been around for centuries. We sing hymns and we recite creeds that go back to the 300s. Every Sunday, we sing psalm texts that are almost 3,000 years old. And so we have a deep appreciation for forms and prayers and texts that have stood the long test of time. We have an immense amount of comfort and delight in approaching our God in worship in the same way that generations upon generations of Christians have come to worship. At the same time, I never, ever, ever want to do anything just because that's the way we've always done it. When there's no rational 
or more importantly, no biblical support for doing so. And of course, every biblical support is a rational support, but you know what I mean. There's no, if there's no rational or biblical support for doing what we're doing, I don't want us ever to be lulled into complacency, saying things rotely, sleepwalking through worship as if we're just here to punch a time clock and get on to the rest of our lives. Just doing what we do, why? Because we do it. This is just what we do without any life, without any meaning, without any understanding of what we're doing. It's important that we keep our worship together fresh, alive, energetic, full of joy, and full of rest. And so from time to time, we need to remind ourselves of why it is we do what we do, especially since almost all of us come from church backgrounds which have very different assumptions about worship and what is supposed to happen in worship. We're in an age where very, very few churches look like us. There are plenty of liturgical churches. There are plenty of big steeple, mainline Protestant churches that, that are liturgical, but most of those and I'd say the vast majority of those don't have a very high regard for the authority of the scriptures. They just don't respect the Bible. And they're doing what they're doing mostly because they've always done it that way. If you ask them, why do you follow this order? Uh, very, I, I wager that very few of them would, would be able to answer those questions in a way that, that we would think was helpful or valuable. Um, there are also, on the other side, plenty of churches that have a high regard for the Bible, but they don't consider that the Bible has much to say about what pleases God in worship. They don't bring their love for the Bible into their decisions about what they sing or how they pray. And, and they're very cavalier, casual attitudes toward worship undermine everything else they say they, they believe. And so, so we look at this landscape and say, what, what if? What if we both worship God with a mature, developed, well-ordered, energetic liturgy, and we believe the Bible? What if we do both? And what if in that we follow an order of worship that we're convinced is actually taught and demonstrated by the scriptures? Why don't we try that? Why don't we try that and see if God blesses that? And that's what we're working on here. You could say that is one of our chief projects. We're in the last few weeks of this series where we cover what we believe about various important topics, and today I wanna to ask what we believe about worship. And I realize for most of you who've been here a long time, this is about, and I counted it up, this is the umpteenth time you've heard me talk about worship. Um, and for those of you who are newer though, this may be the first time that, that you've heard me talk about this. So if you want to do a deeper study, if you wanna do a deeper dive, we did a six-week series on worship back in September of 2021. And if you want to get a biblical basis for every step and everything, we have, we have thought out every step of our liturgy and we do everything we do for a reason. So if you, if you want that deeper dive, those recordings are available on the website. You go back to September of 2021 um, and you can check those out. So today, I'm only gonna summarize six convictions we have about worship just as a starting point six convictions, and they're gonna get shorter. The first one's a little bit longer, uh, but uh, they get shorter as we go. So the first, the first conviction is that God has in fact given us instruction on how to worship him. This is not a given. Christians almost all seem to agree that the church should assemble on the Lord's day 
but we have very little agreement about what is supposed to happen when we get there. The most common assumption in the evangelical world is that we don't have any guardrails on what is supposed to happen when the church gathers. Since we don't have an explicit Sunday order of worship in the book of Acts, since we don't have a church bulletin from Corinth or Ephesus included in the canon of scripture, then that must mean all bets are off. You can do whatever you want to in worship. All that's important is that you get together. So if you want Santa Claus driving a sleigh into the middle of your Christmas service, or if you want a big flag-waving salute to the, to the armed forces on the 4th of July, go for it. If you want to be led in worship by a garage band with a, with a Taylor Swift wannabe wearing, wearing jeans, swinging her hips all over the stage, and, and that's, that's what you want, why not? If you'd rather have a talk show format, um, instead of the proclamation of the word, who's to say no? Or just replace the sermon with um, liturgical interpretive dance. We just get some dudes in leotards kind of acting out the gospel reading here for you. Why not? What's the problem with that? If worship is a weekly appeal, if it's an effort to get unbelievers in the door to evangelize them, then anything goes. Everything is on, everything is on the table. That's the assumption. But what's commonly ignored in all of this is that the Bible is loaded with information on what God requires of us when we come into his presence. For example, he has commanded us repeatedly in the New Testament, not the Old Testament alone, but in the New Testament, he has commanded us to sing the Psalms. And the majority of the church in this, in this country is disobedient when it comes to that very clear command. Psalm singing is elementary obedience. It's, it's low-rung, bottom-shelf obedience. And if, and, if, and if churches would start there, singing the inspired hymns of the Bible, that would not only thoroughly reform their theology, but it would completely transform their approach to a holy God in worship. Most of our theological problems in this century, in this country, most of our theological problems trace back to the fact that we don't think about God the way that the Psalms sing about God, the way that the Psalms speak about God. So, so that's, that's a start. So God has said something about what we are to do, and he's told us exactly what we're to sing. Most, most of these conversations about what do we do for worship all center on music, what kind of musical style that you have, um, because the assumption is God, there's nothing else that you could possibly put thought into. Uh, but, but let's have that conversation. Let's say, what are you singing? Are you singing the Psalms? If not, you're being disobedient. But building on that, the entire Old Testament is constructed around a specific theology of worship. The Old Testament is concerned with what is right worship, what is false worship, what is required by God, what is prohibited. In the first five books of the Bible, we are given precise instructions on how we are to enter God's presence, to be forgiven, to hear him speak to us, to commune with him. And the Holy Spirit hasn't given us these books. You know, the Holy Spirit didn't give us Leviticus or the book of Psalms for us to say, oh, that's a curious historical artifact. That's interesting stuff. Um, it doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't have anything to do with us at all. But boy, isn't that quaint. That's not the reason that we have these things, but we have them in order to know how we are to draw near to a holy God and live in fellowship with him. 
how to commune with him. Now, for truth, all of the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ. We don't bring animal sacrifices to worship anymore. The perfect final sacrifice has been offered once for all. We don't have an earthly high priest. We don't have an architectural uh, temple with zones of holiness and access. We have Christ as our high priest. We have Christ as our temple. Jesus himself has ushered us into the heavenly courts of God. But that doesn't mean that the principles, the attitudes that we learn in Old Testament worship are discarded. Um, we, We have all of this defined for us in the Old Testament so that we know how to live with God and know what what pleases him. All of the Old Testament is preparation for the new. So from the beginning, the church understood this. The church understood that the Old Testament instruction on worship is applicable now that we are offering our bodies as living sacrifices. This language is all over the New Testament that we offer up sacrifices of praise So we apply the foundational principles of what we learned in the temple liturgy. We learn uh, there how to worship on the Lord's day on this side of the resurrection. We make all kinds of adjustments in Christ and we understand uh, what he's taught us. Leviticus 9, which I read a major section of just a few minutes ago. Leviticus 9 gives us the shape of the Old Testament worship liturgy. It reveals what is pleasing to God. If you read Leviticus 9, you see that it begins with a call to worship. And then there are three sacrifices. There is a sin offering. There is an ascension offering, which often gets translated in our English Bibles as whole burnt offering, but the word is ascension. So there's a sin offering. There's an ascension offering. There's a peace offering. And then we conclude with a priestly benediction. We conclude with a a blessing. So these these three sacrifices that are offered in the middle, they were offered at the tabernacle, at the temple, in this specific order. Sin offering, ascension offering, peace offering. You don't play around with the order. You don't mess with things to make it more genuine or meaningful or relevant, however you decide to do it. Uh, You do it like God said to do it. And as if to punctuate this point, in the very next chapter, after God delivers this liturgy to his people, in chapter 10 of Leviticus, what happens? Somebody tries to monkey with things. Uh, Chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it, put incense in it, and offered profane fire before Yahweh. God had a very specific recipe for the incense that he wanted offered on the altar of incense. And Aaron's sons say, well, that's not good enough. We're going to monkey around with it. And they offered this incense, which he had not commanded them. So fire went up from Yahweh and devoured them, and they died before Yahweh. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what Yahweh spoke saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. God, uh, when, when he describes something, when he prescribes something, he requires us to follow his uh, command. He is, is looking for us to please him when he tells us, Uh, what to do. He's looking for us to obey him. So we're told when you come into God's presence in formal worship, that you bring the sin offering, you bring the ascension offering, and you bring the peace offering. And whenever they're listed, they're always listed in this order. Do this, he says. So what were these three sacrifices? With the sin offering, the worshiper 
is seeking atonement of all sins, intentional sins, unintentional sins, things you did deliberately, things you did carelessly. You confess that you have transgressed God's holy law and you're in need of forgiveness and restoration. That's the sin offering. In the ascension offering, once again, you usually read whole burnt offering. This is the ascension offering. The priest cuts up and arranges the animal in a very specific way on the altar and the whole animal is consumed by fire. The smoke of the sacrifice goes up and joins the glory cloud that hangs over the tabernacle. That fire on the altar is not a picture of judgment, but it's a picture of the flame of the Holy Spirit that purifies and transforms and glorifies. And, and so the animal sacrifice is incorporated into the, the glory cloud uh, of, of Yahweh. In, in the peace offering, in the third offering, Part of the animal is consumed on the altar and offered up to God as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Part of the animal is eaten by the priest, and part of the animal is eaten by the worshiper and his family. So there, in the peace offering, God consumes part of the animal. The priest and the worshipers also consume the animal together. There is a covenant meal there at the altar. Uh, we've talked in the past, just a few weeks ago, how meals draw us together, how the meals confirm our fellowship with each other. And this was an Old Testament covenant meal in the peace offering. So over the centuries, Israel was taught to worship this way. This is how you enter God's presence. This is how you renew covenant with God. You offer a sin offering. You offer an ascension offering. You offer a peace offering. And from antiquity, the church picked up on the rhythm of the temple liturgy. There's even evidence that the synagogues scattered throughout the ancient world also picked up on the order of this liturgy, uh, not offering animal sacrifices at the synagogue, but understanding we're offering sacrifices of praise, we're offering ourselves as living sacrifices in, in our worship. But definitely the church picks up on this liturgy and applies the structure to Christian worship. And so now we don't bring animals, we bring ourselves. And so we can follow. You can lay Leviticus 9 over the top of the bulletin that's in your lap or on the chair next to you. Leviticus 9 is the order that we follow. As Moses called everyone to worship, as the trumpets sounded at the temple to summon people to worship. So we begin. We always begin with a formal call to worship, to present yourself before the presence of God. And then what do we do? Do we offer a sin offering? Yes, we do. We confess that we have sinned before God and that we have broken covenant and that we need his forgiveness and his restoration. We offer a sin offering. That's the first thing we do. And then we offer an ascension offering. Just as the animal on the altar was cut up and arranged on the altar, so we are cut up by the two-edged sword of the word, which, as Hebrew says, pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The sword of God, the word of God, is read and preached and explained, and the spirit does his work with his sword to cut us up and rearrange us to make us acceptable sacrifices. And as the smoke of the ascension offering was received up into God's glory cloud, so we ascend by the Spirit into God's throne room. We offer a sin offering. We offer an ascension offering, and we offer a peace offering. Just as the sacrifice on the altar was eaten by God and the priest and the worshiper, so we have bread and wine when we commune together with God. And finally, just as the people departed with a priestly benediction in Leviticus 9, so we depart with the biblical benediction. 
with the priestly benediction uh, from, from Aaron from Numbers. So our order of worship is a conscious effort to follow the patterns God has given us. You don't like this pattern? You think there's a better one? Where is it? Where has is, where is God articulated another way for us to enter into worship with him and to commune with him, to hear him speak to us after he's forgiven us and for us to eat at his table? Where else has God given us this pattern? This order of worship follows the very same covenant renewal pattern that the triune God has demonstrated from creation forward in every single interaction with man. Every time he's initiated or renewed covenant with man, the very same steps in the very same order are followed. And this is something that, again, I've unpacked in greater detail in other places. But these rhythms are embedded in all of God's dealings with man. Um, and so in worship, we follow this order, which is the basis for all historic liturgies. You go to any century of the church and see how they worshiped, and you see the very same things. You're going to find different hymns. You're going to find different prayers, but you're going to see them confessing their sins, reading and proclaiming the word, and eating at the Lord's table. If you go to G uh, the Genevan liturgy that Calvin had, um, you're going to find the same thing. On the Sundays where the magistrates allowed him to have communion, uh, you're going to find the very same thing. Confession of sin, the reading and proclamation of the word, and eating at the Lord's table. And so that's why, that's the basis for, for what we're doing here. That's all important, but again, I'm, that's only addressing the order of worship, and that's not all we believe about worship. Here are another, uh, a number of other convictions we hold dear. We also believe that this is important because worship is the reason for our creation, and this is the most important activity that we engage in. God created Adam for worship. Adam's job and his purpose was to glorify his creator by obeying him and living with him in communion and fellowship and listening to his creator's word and following it. That is why Adam was created. And in, and in, 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 in the process of doing that, God gave him a liturgical helper, Eve, who would worship with him. And out of their worship and obedience together would flow dominion over the whole earth. God would give them children who they were to train up to be faithful worshipers. And they were to fill the earth with a race of worshipers. And that purpose doesn't change with the fall. God restores them to that after, after the fall. After the fall, the first thing God does is bring them back into fellowship so that they can continue worshiping him. Whenever God works out a mighty deliverance for man, restoration to right worship is the goal of that. After the flood, God and Noah renew covenant, and all of creation is brought back into fellowship through Noah's worship. God calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, stop worshiping those false gods. Stop worshiping idols. Start worshiping the God of creation. So Adam goes through the land, building altars everywhere he goes, calling everyone to worship Yahweh. When Moses stands before Pharaoh to ask that Pharaoh let the children of Israel go, why does, why does he want them to go? What is the purpose for letting them go? So that they can go out and worship the living God. And then when Israel leaves Egypt, they are called the congregation, the called out people of the Lord. They're separated from the world. They're separated unto God. They're delivered from bondage in order to live in nearness to Yahweh. 
You get to the New Testament, the very same concept is used for the church. The church is the ecclesia. The church is the body of people, the assembly that has been called out for the same purpose. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin, brought before God's presence to offer praises, to hear his word, and to eat and drink in his presence. The word church is primarily a liturgical description of who we are. Uh, it identifies us as a worshiping people. What distinguishes the church from the world is who we worship. Um, and everyone worships something. We worship the God of creation. Because we were created for worship, we never, ever, ever let anything get in the way of worship. And I realize today, right now, I'm not preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the people who came to the early service on the day when you changed the clocks. And I'm preaching to the people who came in the middle of a winter blizzard, a huge storm, and it's really, really, this is all being recorded, so everybody's gonna think that uh, there was a blizzard today. Um, and we can edit that part out. And your, your name is on the roll. Your name is on the roster of people who show up on Time Change Sunday in the middle of a blizzard. We, this is why it's so important, right? It's why we don't let anything get in the way of worship. We do whatever it takes to appear before God, and we will continue to do whatever it takes to keep the doors open uh, of the church so that we can assemble together, so that we can worship together, because God created us and called us and delivered us and redeemed us so that we could all live in fellowship with him. And when I say all, I mean including our children. That's why we don't shuffle them off to children's churches because they need the communion and fellowship of their God just as much as we do. They don't need it less than we do. They need to meet with him. They need to stand before their creator in a formal way to call on his name, to hear his voice, and to eat with him as well. All of us together. It's why it's so critical. It's what we were created for. I promised I would move quickly the further I go down the list, and I'll keep that promise. Third, worship is not a temporary escape from the world. It's not a retreat from reality, but it sets the pattern for all of life. God teaches his people to worship him in a certain way, which equips them with habits and routines for life. Uh, we're, we're driving uh, the, the, the values and the patterns and the habits of Christian life for, for once we leave here, we can continue operating with the things that we've learned and which the things which we've practiced here. We're cultivating in worship a true understanding of our relationship with God. We learn here that our relationship with him is founded on grace because he's the one who's called us. He's provided the sacrifice. He has initiated. He has pursued us. We learn in worship that God is holy and just, but that he's good and he loves to be with us. He enjoys being in our presence and for us to be in his presence. He loves to forgive us. He's really glad to do it. We learn together when we confess our sins together that forgiveness is in some respects the easiest thing in the world to seek. It's, it's easy to confess your sins and it's something that we all ought to do all the time. It's the happiest thing in the world to confess your sins and to be restored to fellowship because God loves to forgive. He also loves to correct and instruct and encourage you because that's what you do for those whom you love. We learn in worship that he loves to give us good gifts and he's happy to call us his people. 
in worship, we're receiving all of these good things and we learn that everything is a gift and we don't live to serve ourselves. Every step of the liturgy disciples us. We are called to worship so that we can in turn call others to worship the living God. We are forgiven so that we can learn how to forgive others. God teaches us by his word so that we understand how important it is to teach others the gospel of our savior. He feeds us so that we can feed the nations with the, the bread of life. God pronounces a blessing upon us so that we can go out into the world as anointed Christ-like people who transform the world. All of worship disciples us, it orders our lives, it gives us patterns and habits for the rest of life. Fourth, we believe that congregational worship is God-centered, that the triune God of creation is the audience of our worship. I'm not performing for you, the musicians aren't performing for you. If, if we have a choir, we have special uh, musical things. It's not a performance. Uh, to excite you or to, uh, it, it's to edify you. It's, it's a, uh, we are worshiping. I am worshiping, uh, worship, I'm sorry, preaching is an act of worship. I am worshiping God even as I am um, uh, unpacking his word and his precepts. Um, but we're not performing. We're, none of us are performing. We're, we aren't doing things that will entertain unbelievers to trick them into believing the gospel somehow. We'd love for people to hear the gospel and to be convicted of their sins. God draws people through the preaching of his word. But we're not here to try to make Christ conform to the world. We're trying to conform the world to Christ. And the way we do that is not by dumbing everything down and turning worship into a circus of worldly entertainments. That's not at all what we're doing. Because God is our audience, we're seeking first to please him in all things and trusting him to bless us. That's why our worship is Bible-saturated. That's why we read long sections of, of Bible. Why when we speak to each other and sing to each other and we pray, everything is Bible. God is speaking. It is, it is God who we are uh, uh, seeking to fellowship with and seeking to please in our worship. Fifth, building on that, worship is participatory and dialogical. Worship by dialogical, I mean worship is a marvelous dialogue between God and his people. When worship begins, he calls, we respond. We confess our sins and he forgives. He speaks and we say thanks be to God. He feeds us and we eat. He gives us a cup and we drink it. Worship is not a spectator event. You don't come to watch other people worship. This is your work on the Lord's day. I've told you this before, but uh, often we'll get uh, people who visit us in worship, and after worship they say, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, that was a workout. And I say, good, that's what it's meant to be. We want you engaged, we, wa we want you uh, to be involved. So don't, don't sit it out. If you're inclined or tempted to uh, just lay back and not participate, that is the wrong impulse. When we pray, pray with us. Confess your faith when we ask you to confess your faith. These are the things you believe. Sing when we sing. It's, it's never difficult, really, to uh, convince women and children to sing, not normally, but it's important that men sing. We deliberately do not sing effete songs. We don't, we don't sing Jesus is my boyfriend type of songs deliberately. We sing 
war horse psalms and hymns deliberately. And it's so wonderful when we rattle the windows with the voices of all the saints, and especially when there are strong, booming male voices. So sing, and if you don't know how to sing, say the words as loud as you can. And, and if somebody looks at you cross-eyed, uh, send them to me, and I'll, and I'll straighten them out. If you can't sing, say it. And if you need practice, come to our psalm sings. Once a month on a Wednesday night, we break everybody up into parts and you can sit with other people who sing bass and sing tenor and you can learn. You can learn that when the note goes up, you go up. And when the note goes down, you go down. You don't have to read music. And when the note goes up a lot, you go up a lot. And when it goes down a lot, you go down a lot too. And you just find it and you do it. But sing, and if you can't sing, then shout and just say the words. Um, But it's not unmanly and it's not weak to sing. David sang, Moses sang, Jesus sang. It's, it's, it's what we're made to do because worship is participatory. There's not one part of this that is uh, you are an audience um, for. Uh, you, are a, uh, you work in worship. Six, finally, worship is our primary tactical maneuver against the dominion of Satan, against principalities and powers. In worship, we charge the gates of hell with weapons that Satan has no defenses against. Over and over and over in the scriptures, the enemies of God's people are not beaten with conventional weapons. They're not beaten with conventional warfare or tactics. God's people never outnumber their enemies, nor are they bigger or stronger or tougher. God's enemies are defeated by God when God's people obey him. God's people call on his name and they call on his help and he delivers them and defeats their enemies. When Israel puts the singers and the priests out in front of the army, the enemies of God defeat themselves. When God's people pray and march around the city and blow trumpets, the walls fall down flat. We're doing something similar today when we come into God's presence. We come as priests acting acting on behalf of the world, confessing our sins, reading his word out loud, and we're praying and we're asking God to change the world as we do this. And he has promised to do that. God says, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. In Revelation 8, I've recalled this picture so many times, but it's one of my favorite images from the book of Revelation. The prayers of the saints and the martyrs go up. The prayers ascend. The angel mixes their prayers with this heavenly incense before the throne of God. And then the angel scoops up hot coals from the heavenly altar and flings the fire to earth where the saints are delivered and the wicked are judged. Similarly, when the church gathers to sing psalms, to confess their sins, to hear God's word opened and read out loud, when we eat real bread and drink real wine in God's presence, the sweet-smelling savor of our sacrifice ascends before the throne of God, and God shakes the earth. The faithful worship of God's people is what preserves the earth as we stand as intercessors for our families, for our nation, for civilization. God blesses and redeems and moves and delivers. Does anybody remember what happened about three years ago when the church, the majority of the church, just decided to hit pause on worship? When, when everybody just said, you know what, let's just not worship publicly for a while. What happened that summer? Does anybody remember? Our society was ripped apart. Uh, we we uh, Things unraveled really quickly. I don't think I'm uh, being too imaginative 
or, or um, you know, overly conspiratorial to, to connect some dots here and say, the church stopped worshiping. Society unraveled. When churches started opening their doors, some order and peace restored. But while the church wasn't worshiping, things got out of control in a way we haven't seen in a very long time. If we acknowledge that the principal problems of our world are spiritual problems, this is the arena where spiritual warfare is initiated. This is the arena where spiritual warfare is waged. The reformation and the revival of the world begins with the re reformation and revival of the church. And the reformation of the church begins with the reformation of worship. And that's why this is so critical. So knowing these things then, what's the call for us? What's the takeaway? Well, engage with God in worship with all of your heart and soul and mind because none of this is automatic. None of this is magic. None of this is a matter of wooden habit. We don't want to do any of this just because this is what we do and we don't know why we do it. We, we, we don't ever question it. This is just what we do. No, engage your entire body in worship. Notice that we kneel and we raise our hands and we eat and we drink. Your whole body is engaged in the worship of God because we're not just spirits, we're bodies. Meditate on the words we say and sing and pray. Don't just sing anything rotely. Again, uh, think about what we're singing. Confess your sins. Truly confess your sins as we confess them together and put them away. Focus your mind and train yourself to not be distracted. Exercise yourself in paying attention when the word is taught and read. And do everything in your control not to be a distraction to people around you. Um, to, to really consider that if, if I'm making a lot of noise, if I'm messing around, I'm distracting people around me. Other people are not able to focus and rest in and understand what's being said and done. So, so exercise yourself in self-control when the word is read and taught and truly rejoice and rest in the good gifts of your Savior. The prophets saved their most fiery words of rebuke for hypocritical false worship. God's decisive judgment falls on those who would take his worship lightly. So treat worship like the most important thing in your life because you know it's what you were created for. Get good rest on Saturday night, even when they steal an hour of your life. Get good rest on Saturday night. Make preparations on Saturday for a smooth Sunday morning. Do everything in your power to make the Lord's Day a delight, the happiest, most restful, peaceful, joyful day of the week so that all of our children look forward to Sunday. They don't dread it. They look forward to it. And God has made, God has made promises. I'm going to close with this. God makes promises in Isaiah. He says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from your doing your pleasure on my holy day, don't, don't work, don't uh, you know, go to soccer tournaments. That's, that's not what this day is for. If you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of Yahweh honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in Yahweh, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. God has promised rest and delight to those who take these things seriously. And so we'll take hold of his promises today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for drawing us into your presence today. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for speaking us to you through your word. 
Thank you for inviting us to your table. We give you thanks for all these good things, and we pray that by your spirit, you would cause us to rest in them today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.